So let's just take Apple, for example. They have never really encouraged people working remotely. Steve Jobs was one of the biggest proponents of people being in a room together, that agile methodology, you know, people, you know, kind of becoming in sync with each other. So much so that he built one of the most expensive buildings on the planet to support and enable that and thrive and build that culture and that work style and that innovation, that fail fast mentality. And now, there's this massive war for talent. A lot of tech companies are saying, hey, you can work remotely forever. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. H-O-K. Yes, the global architecture and design firm. They are crafting workplace strategies and design outcomes for some of the world's largest and most dynamic companies. And at the head of that practice is Senior Principal and Director of Workplace, Kay Sargent. She's my guest, and let me tell you, she's kind of a big deal. If I sound a little giddy at the start of this conversation, it's because I was. Listen, I try hard to keep these episodes nice and tight. You know, right around 30 minutes. I want to be a good steward of your time, Every minute needs to be entertaining, educational, or inspirational. Otherwise, I'm kind of cutting it out. But this one, this one's an hour. I just couldn't cut anything. It was all so good. So grab a pen and paper. There's a ton of original thought around workplace and where it's heading. Well, I'm honored to have you on as happy, a guest. Happy to. You've done so much for this industry in the way of research and advancing the profession of design. Uh, and, it, and it seems like even when I talk to you now, it's, it's like e- e- all the research you've already done, you seem like the best, most enticing stuff is still ahead of you. It is. That's because it is. It never stops. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're really fortunate to be in an industry that is so vast and and covers so many different topics. And I think I've sustained myself through my career because of a level of curiosity that I have. And there's just so many different things that you can explore. And we are now living in a time where there is so much potential and so much focus on what we are doing that it's really exciting. It is really exciting. I agree. And I still feel like I'm learning new things. You know, there was a little bit of a rut, I feel like, where, where we had the, um, the echo chamber really on full blast and all the articles started sounding the same. But I kind of feel like we've gotten out of that now. Everybody's challenging the way of thinking that we've had over the last five, six years, and we're digging deeper and we're valuing research more than ever before. Yeah, and I, um, I, you know, some of that is good. Some of that is not good. And I think as an industry, we have a history of not asking good questions, quite frankly, and falling right back into some bad behaviors and some bad habits. And you can already starting to see some of that starting to happen and emerge. And it's going to get us in hot water, and it's going to distract us from what I think are the real issues at hand. It's almost like a like a design brief. You know, you can't do a great design without the right design brief. 
And it's kind of that, that's how the answers are. You can't get the right answers without crafting great questions. Yes. And you, we also need to understand that we don't have to go from one extreme to the other, right? Like nobody was allowed to work from home. Now nobody ever wants, you know, nobody wants that all we want to do is work from home. And there's, there's a happy middle. And we have to stop looking for easy answers that fit everybody's needs. I think there's way too much of people professing from their own personal opinions and not considering that not everybody's experience is the same. And I think we're not looking ahead far enough to what we already know is on the horizon and is going to be an issue as we go forward. Right, right. And I, you know, when I look at some of the paths you've taken us through, uh, through your research and, and guidance around the profession of design, one of the things we talked a lot about was choice, but I don't think we knew all the reasons why it mattered and we knew all the ways to execute it. And, you know, when I, I think, uh, I think the intentions were always pure, but it, a lot of it was based around, you know, activities. And I think what you've done here in the last few years is you've gone a layer deeper and you've really kind of understood the inner human and, and, and neurodiversity being a big part of that. And I'm excited to kind of have you walk us through how you got there and some of those key revelations. Happy to. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting, though. Um, sometimes the, the answers are so obvious that we just <laughs> overlook them. And I think for a long time in our industry, people have tried to come up with standardization and massive rollouts and, you know, kits apart and creating the perfect space for, you know, the typical person. Well, I challenge anybody today to define the typical person. I mean, like, you know, Doug, if I was to ask you, who is the typical person today? How would you answer that? Yeah, it's, it's almost like the word people has become too singular. Well, yes. And, and as people, we don't all dress the same. You would be hard pressed to go into almost any office and find two people that are dressed exactly the same. Now, granted, you do have people that dress the same every single day, you know, like the Donald Trumps and the, the Barack Obama. One thing they had in common is they both kind of had a uniform because they didn't want to think about what they had to wear. And so they wore the same thing literally every single day. Different version, different suit, okay. But, you know, the look was exactly the same. Um, but, as uh, you know, so our, in our wardrobe, we're very diverse. And if I were to say to you, hey, Doug, can you pick out a wardrobe for somebody? You would be like, well, yes, but like man or woman, what age are they? What do they do? Where do they live? Like, I can't, I can't do that. But yet that's what we do with the workplace, design a workplace for somebody, right? And we just generic everything, make everything generic. And so it comes down. And what we're doing in space is the equivalent of making everybody wear a size 10 gray unitard, regardless of your age, your sex, your gender, or your size. Like everybody has to wear the same suit. And it doesn't fit. And so mm. we have to learn from other parts in our lives where we highly customize everything. Why does the workplace have to be so rigid 
so um, generic and so standardized to the point that it basically doesn't meet anybody's needs at all. That's where we that's where we're at, and we need to totally rethink that. I I think some of what has fueled that has been the notion of what a professional is. You know, like you become a work robot when you get to the office, you know, and then, you know, you're supposed to leave your bubbly fun personality behind, you know, it just got so darn serious too. And it's like, there wasn't, you know, we, there was this kind of sanitization of who you are in the history of office culture. Well, well that, think about it. That was accepted. Yeah. I mean, look, think about it. You know, um, the modern office was really created back in the early 1900s when there was kind of this warehousing mentality. And you had rows and rows of desks of people doing repetitive tasks all day long. And I did one thing and then I passed it on to somebody else. It's like this manufacturing mentality. But over time, we've really evolved to become more knowledge workers. But the way that we expected to work uh, and people to work in workplaces didn't really change. And so we're putting people in kind of these warehousing people environments that is not suited at all to the type of work that they're actually really doing today. And I think that, uh, you know, slowly but surely, things have changed radically. And I'll just give you an example, something that has crept up over time, slowly but surely. I've been practicing for 37 years. 37 years ago, you had to go to the office. You had to go to work because we didn't have computers. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have fax machines. You physically had to go to a place to do your work. Okay. Um, but all of that has changed over time. But in the 37 years that I've been working, has the modern office changed significantly to keep up with the way that we work and the patterns of how we work? And I would say the answer for in most offices is no, it hasn't. Mm. And that's a problem. I wonder if it's because the office is so tied to culture. And we all know that products, technologies, um, those change faster than cultures change. And because office was tied to culture, it just didn't keep up. Well, let's let's um, let's let's go back twenty years ago, and were people talking about culture? Mm. Did they people care about culture? You know, I, I don't I don't want to say that nobody cared about it, but it, it wasn't really it wasn't really defined in those those terms. And I I think uh, twenty years ago, most corporate real estate. Uh, and C-suite individuals saw their real estate as a, we have to have it. It's a liability. It wasn't an asset. And it wasn't until, I think, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago when Gallup really started coming out with all their research about employee engagement and how horrible that really is in most environments. And uh, then we started to deal with, you know, uh, presenteeism in the workplace and all of mm -hmm. these issues that we started to realize, hmm, you know, if the employees aren't engaged or effective, then the work product or whatever it is, is going to suffer. And the environment has an impact on that. And by the way, it wasn't that long ago that we had to convince people 
that the workplace did have an impact on the individuals in it and can, it could influence that. And so this whole notion of culture and human-centric design and uh, really focusing on the human experience and the employee experience and humanity really is not that old. And I don't want to say that before we didn't care about that, but that wasn't necessarily the focus. And so now the focus has shifted significantly towards that end. And I would almost say in the latest, uh, you know, post-pandemic or in this stage of the pandemic, I guess we're not really post, um, it's it's gone into hyperdrive. And I think mm. people are taking it to an extreme uh, to some degree. And I, and I get a lot of grief for saying that, but quite frankly, Doug, I mean, right now, employees are very empowered. And we as an industry have asked some really dumb questions. We asked people what they wanted. We didn't ask whether it was right for the business or whether it helped secure the culture. It was a better thing. We asked what people wanted, and they told us, okay? And I, I think what we are seeing is this gap between what the C-suite is trying to do and what the workforce is saying they want. And everybody's putting, you know, kind of the the onus on the C-suite saying you're out of touch. Well, I'm going to push back on that a little bit and say that the C-suite is worried about the resistance and the resiliency and the durability of the company. And by the way, if the company isn't succeeding and isn't thriving, then nobody's going to be successful. So let's just take Apple for example, they have never really encouraged people working remotely. Steve Jobs was one of the biggest proponents of people being in a room together, that agile methodology, you know, people, you know, kind of becoming in sync with each other, so much so that he built one of the most expensive buildings on the planet to support and enable that and thrive and build that culture and that work style and that innovation, that fail fast mentality. And now, there's this massive war for talent. A lot of tech companies are saying, eh, you can work remotely forever, which, by the way, I, I, I'm going to call BS on because I think it goes exactly against their entire culture and how they innovate rapidly, et cetera. But they've done it. And so now they all have to kind of say what people want to hear. And Apple came out and said, uh, we want you to come back. We're going to give you some flexibility, which they've never really done before. We're going to give you some flexibility. But that wasn't good enough for a lot of people. They pushed back even further. Mm. And, and I, you know, so are we saying that Steve Jobs was wrong? That people can innovate just as fast being scattered to the winds? And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to do that? And I'm going to say, no, did we ask the employees what they wanted? Or did we ask a better question, which is, we're in kind of, a little bit of uncharted territory for this company. Uh, we care about the health and well-being. We know there's a heightened sense of anxiety right now and a heightened sensitivity. But we need to make sure that the business survives. And we believe that the power of people coming together and the power of place enables that. And so we, we really want you to come back. And But we respect the fact that, you know, you want some more flexibility and a little bit more control. So where do we find that happy balance in the middle? And what do we need to do, not only to make your needs, to meet your needs, but to meet the needs of the business? Mm-hmm. Because if the business isn't successful, none of us are going to be. And right. we didn't ask the right question here. Yeah, and I, I even think some of the businesses that are struggling with this may have been underserving their people in their workplace you know through through an environment that didn't 
provide the right choices, the right care, you know, the right individuality. And so in, in, in a way, some of these employers or businesses are going, they're going to have to come out and say, you know, like, hey, we, we have been underserving you. And I think acknowledging that and, and promising a workplace that will meet those needs and desires of, of people, I think is a big part of getting people back. Yeah, because... Uh, and having that in-person collaboration. Right, because 35 years ago, again, you had to go to the office. You don't have to. And I think the question right now is, what are you providing me in the office that is so enticing that I can't get it home? And if you're, you can't answer that question for me or you, you, uh, there's not a compelling reason for me to be there, um, then why would I want to? And by the way, there are a lot of reasons you would want to. I mean, there are a lot of people that, that working from home is not for everybody. There's a whole lot of people that really hate it. They, they miss the energy. But, you know, it's interesting, Doug, because we did a study in 2016 about co-working and just about remote work. And what we found then, and we redid some of the analysis, and it's bearing out to be true now as well. What we found are the people that are the most disengaged are the people that are never together. They always work remotely, but they're part of a team, right? And partly it's because you aren't, you know, your, your social capital might be eroding a little bit. Your interactions, even though you might be on Zoom with somebody there, it's a different type of interaction that you have with somebody on Zoom. It's not as personable. Um, and for a lot of individuals, you don't feel that same level of commitment. And you might miss out on some of those things or some of the cultural things that are happening or just the vibe of being there and, and the casual uh, discussions and the people you may never be on a Zoom call with, but if you were in the office, you might be having conversations with. Okay, so we found that those tend to be the people that are the least engaged. The second group of people that is the least engaged are the people that are always in the <laughs> office, because quite frankly, I think in many cases they take it for granted. And when they're in the office because they have no choice, they begrudge the fact that they don't have any choice, and they are trying to hide from other people half the time so they can do that heads down work, right? And they're like, well, I'm here every day, so I don't need to make an effort to see you. I'm, I'm actually trying to make an effort to get away from you so I can be on this call and not be disturbed, right? The people that tend to be the most engaged are the ones that have a little bit of option and a little bit of choice. And what ends up happening is they can plan their time more accordingly. I'm going to do my heads down stuff at home. I'm going to, you know, when I go to the office, it's really to build that social capital and connect with the teams. And they have some flexibility and control over things. So they don't have that same sense of resistance or they don't fear they're missing out on things. Uh, and they feel empowered. And they don't take it for granted. They don't take either situation for granted, they appreciate both of them more. And I think that that really is the definition of the hybrid model. Yeah, it's almost like when you're describing this, I'm imagining, you know, that we have all these tools and the office is kind of like this tool that we're going to use. And if I if I knew that this was a tool that I could use, I would I would think of it that way. I would I would show up and I'd, I'd think, OK, I'm using the office today versus like I'm I'm just here. Right. You know, I'm just here today again. Right. And, and I think there's a big debate going on. You know, again, sometimes I think we overthink things. Okay. So there's a big debate about, well, what do we need to do to get people to come back into the office? I think the simple question is, what do people miss when they're working from home? And I think the answer is 
the ability to connect with their colleagues or meet with clients, the services and or amenities, you know, somebody else to make me a cup of coffee or, you know, not eat the same damn salad every day for the next, you know, 18 months, right? <laughs> um, or uh, better ergonomic setups because there's a whole lot of people that are sitting in bad ergonomic furniture because they thought they were going to be there for a, a year or I mean a month or a week. And there's people that don't just have, they don't have the space, the luxury to set up something in their, in their space. You know, there's a, a ton uh, probably the highest percentage since the late 1940s of people between the age of 19 and 29 living with their parents, right? It's almost 57%. And so in wow. many cases, they might, you know, I might have this big sunroom that I'm sitting in, but, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've, I have three kippers, kids in parents' pockets eroding retirement, three in my house right now who don't have, you know, they're in, they're in their bedroom or they're in the basement or whatever. They may not have the same setup. Uh, and there are a lot of people that have roommates. So we need to think about, you know, whether it's ergonomics or maybe it's the technology or the tools or just the energy. Or maybe you just want to get away from the lawn guy that keeps showing up every time you need to get on an important call and he's leaf blowing outside your window, right? So I think we just need to think about that. And then we had a really interesting exercise recently, and I have to credit Vincent Ng and our team. They were They were talking with one of our clients, and it was like, but there are things that people have gotten very used to, benefits from working from home, that they're going to miss, like pets, or people have gotten into cooking, or plants, or any of that stuff. So how do we incorporate that? Mm. And I think that the team came up with this, this notion or this concept of lifestyle studios, where you can take those things that you've really gotten into and bring them to the next level. Don't abandon them. But the office was actually a place where you can take it up to the next level, share that with other people, and continue it. And so you're not getting rid of your habits and your, your new hobbies, but you're, uh, you're enhancing them. And while you're doing that, you're connecting with your colleagues and building back that social capital that is so important. So maybe there's a neighborhood that's dog-friendly. Uh, maybe mm. there's an area for the people that have all their plants that they can bring their plants in and they can green the workplace and they have a group that tends to those and they take some kind of responsibility. Maybe there's a group that's really gotten into cooking and they meet every Friday for their cooking classes or they bring in the fruits of their things or they share recipes or a makerspace or music lovers or, you know, a variety of things, uh, even book club. You know, people that have gotten really into reading or whatever. Is there a space where you can have a lending library and those people can come together and connect? And so there's a reason now that I want to go to the office, not just to work, but, oh, today's that day that my, you know, the group, we're going to tend the garden and then we're going to make, you know, lunch together and then I have book club tonight. So I want to be in the office today because of the social connections. And that helps strengthen your loyalty to a company, your loyalty to each other, makes you feel more belonging, which... Quite frankly, a lot of people have been very lonely for the last eight years. So it really can help take us to a whole new level. It's just thinking a little bit differently. I'm I'm really feeling that. I love what you're putting out here and the, the picture you're painting. I almost I feel like like the office has a new promise that it needs to make, you know, uh, to, to to the people that come there. I almost feel like that a, a key component will be this new. Uh, 
when I say culture, I'm not even thinking like company culture, but the new notion of like of, of office and your time there, like that has to be rewritten because I do feel like, um, you know, no matter if you put, you know, activities and things into an office, if people feel like they're not supposed to do those things or, you know, there's that, there's that, that thing in the office that sits out there and just kind of this cloud sometimes, and it's not every organization, but it's like, this is a place of work and that's the only thing that shall happen in this place. You know, that yeah. that cloud has been there uh, historically. And I think there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of work that we have to do as, as business leaders, I think, in kind of showing this new way, this new promise. Right. And I think our industry has fueled that fire because we are so focused on productivity. Mm. And I'm going to say, I think productivity is a little bit of a red herring, right? So people are like, how do you measure productivity? Okay. Well, there are ways to measure productivity. You can, and you know, if you're, if you're doing a repetitive task, if you're in a call center, if you're, if you're processing papers or claims, et cetera, it's easy, you know, you can do that. Okay. So the debate about whether you can track that or not for knowledge workers, it's a little bit different. But there are also ways and metrics that you can use that, that can measure productivity. But, you know, the studies are showing that, uh, yes, people that are working from home might be more productive, but it's probably because they're working longer hours. And, mm. and is that sustainable from a health and, you know, from a physical and mental health standpoint? And it's not just about productivity. Industries today, what, when, before COVID, the biggest question that industry leaders had is, can, our, can we innovate fast enough to even stay relevant? And that's the name of the game today, because if you can't pivot or innovate and continue to stay on top as the rest of the world is, is changing rapidly, you will become a dinosaur and become extinct. And so innovation is key. And when you think about Uber, Airbnb, uh, any of these companies that have, you know, Amazon have changed everything. They didn't do it by providing you the same thing faster. Hmm. They shifted the way that they delivered it and they innovated. And so innovation is absolutely critical to the success of companies today, it, to their very existence. Okay, It's not just about, can I pr produce a widget faster? And I think this goes back, I think we're at another Henry Ford moment where mm. he said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. You know, it's not just about productivity, it's about innovation. And so if we focus, in it, and if innovation is important, we need to break down the silos, because we are very, very siloed. And I think that's a whole other subject we could talk hours about. Uh, the ability to make decisions quickly is totally hampered by that. Um, we are not... It, we are not allowing people to be in situations and empowering them to really be as innovative as possible. And, and the, and the uh, permission to fail, I think, is really important. But also, we know that this is heavily reliant on social capital, by people uh, trusting each other. And trust is so important. We could That's another whole hour conversation. Uh, but trusting each other and building that camaraderie and then when you feel safe around people, then you innovate. And then you'll say that crazy thing that you're thinking in the back of your head, but you'll say it now because you trust these people and you have social capital with them. 
Whereas on a Zoom call with a bunch of people you may never have met and you don't really understand their body language or what they're saying or how they're going to react, you might be a lot more hesitant to say something. And so uh, we've had to get really creative in how we innovate, but I don't think there's any substitution for people coming together and the synergies that happen and the bonding that happens when people do that. Yeah, that, that judgment-free space is so critical. I, I agree. Um, yeah. How many ideas are just, you know, died in someone's head, never made it out, you know? And by the way, you know, whose heads they don't die in. Oh, you just set me up for this so perfectly, Doug. I can't Bring even it. say this. Do you know what a high percentage of entrepreneurs are neurodiverse? Like, unbelievable. I mean, and you think about, like, like Elon Musk and, you know, just came out with, you know, and, and said he and shared he had Asperger's or uh, Richard Branson or several. People that tend to be neurodiverse tend to be out-of-the-box thinkers. They tend to, you know, just kind of big picture. They can really focus in. They can cut through all the stuff and be very singularly focused or, or think about things that the rest of us will say, oh, that's a little crazy. No, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to dial it back a little bit, right? And so a lot of entrepreneurs uh, tend to be neurodiverse because that's one of, I don't want to say their superpowers, but it's one of the things that is a real benefit uh, for people that are neurodiverse. And, and, you know, I think the other thing that really drives innovation is diversity. And so this is one of the reasons, not only because it's the right thing to do and it's good for your ESG reports, but it has shown that more diverse groups will actually ideate and innovate faster because you're not surrounding yourself with people that think just like you and going down a singular path. You're breaking down the silos, you're bringing in fresh ideas, you're challenging the status quo and you're seeing something in a new light. And that's part of what's driving this massive need for diversifying the workforce. Yeah, I can especially see that in in the profession of design that thrives on creativity. I, I know we're we're doing that exact same thing. We're reaching, um, even at the grade school and high school level, how do we begin to immerse a more diverse group of students to the, into the field of design? But I mean, I guess, I don't think we're the only profession that, that struggles from this. You know, I mean, it's, no. it's probably happened. IT, engineering, you know, there's a lot of places where diversity has been a struggle. Well, I'll, I will, um, it is, absolutely. And the diversity of thinking and just the way that we think. And so uh, I think, you know, I'm the mother of five kids, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a year on this. Let's see, my oldest daughter, Katie, 29, was in third grade, so 20 years ago when um, standardized testing became the norm in public schools. And the second that they did that, then teachers changed the way that they started teaching so that kids would pass the test and understand the facts. And what we, we shifted from uh, teaching kids, so what, what does that mean, to what are the facts? And quite mm. frankly, I think that is a fatal mistake because you can Google facts, but you can't Google, what if I wanted to do, break all the rules and blah, 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 right? And so knowing, you know, having knowledge 
And knowing facts does not make you wise. Wisdom comes from being able to apply that knowledge. And we're not teaching our kids to say, so what, what does that mean? And that's Mm. what really made us the innovative pioneers that this country was so well known for, for years and years and years. You've really brought it full circle back to, are we asking the right questions? You know, I mean, it's almost like, well, if you would have looked at education 25 years ago, maybe you would have predicted that, yeah, we're not asking the right questions. And I could have told you that was going to happen. We're not, we're not teaching the right thing, right? I mean, if you want people to be innovative and creative, then you need to think, you need to teach them how to think and apply things and ask, you know, different questions. And, and I will tell you, I'm kind of dumbfounded right now at how many webinars I get on and people will say, we have no idea what's going to happen. You know, who knows? And, and look, nobody has a crystal ball and can say exactly what's going to happen. However, you know, we deal with clients that have millions of square feet of space all around the world. They don't like surprises. And so we spend a lot of time doing future casting and thinking about things. I mean, let, let's just get really real for a minute. You know, when we design a space, it will stand for at least five years, if not 10, if it's a building 40 to 70. Okay, probably 70. We know that artificial intelligence, augmented reality, robotics, biometrics, Internet of Things, sensors, all of those things are basically already here. They're not being widely used, but they are already here. And so if you're ignoring those things in the design of a building that you expect to still be relevant in 10 years when those things become much more common, then we're missing the point, right? Like, we're not designing spaces for right now. We're designing things that are going to stand for a period of time, and we need to consider that. It doesn't mean we can we can ignore now, right? But we have to think about that. And and people are always saying, well, how do we future-proof? And I jokingly say, well, you, you can't proof. It's coming, right? So you can't, <laughs> you can't stop the future can't from arriving. From <laughs> but what you can do is be future-ready. And I don't think enough people are really being honest about what wasn't working before, Mm. the new challenges that COVID has created, and the things that are on the horizon that are about to smack us in the face. And if we don't look up and realize that, then we're always going to be caught flat-footed and retreating. And we have to do a better job of thinking forward and projecting forward and incorporating some of those things. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I I do think it's become very uh, of the moment, very trendy to be you know to, to say well, you know well we don't know and it's a it's a showing of humility in some cases right um, you know we don't know what's going to happen and that's that's become a kind of an acceptable answer. What you're saying is it's not maybe about knowing or not knowing. Uh, maybe maybe we're not accepting the challenge because we're afraid of afraid of the answers or we're just not willing to admit where we fell on our faces in the past i mean i be I, yeah i mean I, some, somebody asked me once what my what my greatest strength was and i would say it's curiosity i'm incredibly curious and i want to know like anytime i go to another country i want to know everything about it 
And, and there are precedents that are being set in other parts of the world. Now, we also, you need to understand the dynamics because you can't just, you know, <laughs> I'll give you an example. You can't just take something that's happening in another part of the world and apply it here and say, we're good, right? You know, like when benching became very common in Europe, and then it's like, well, let's bring it to, you know, it's happening in Europe, so we're going to do it here. Europe ran out of space 20 years before the United States did. Tell somebody in Texas that they have to sit in a bench because we're out of space, because someone in London decided to do that, and, and they clearly were landlocked and out of space, right? And so, you know, we have to make sure that if we're looking at those lessons learned, that we're applying the right filters and putting them in context and understanding whether they're relevant or not to us. But there is a precedent for a lot of this stuff. And, and all you have to do is look. I mean, the other thing that people keep saying is, you know, well, this hybrid model, there's no precedent for this. I'm going to call BS on that, too. I mean, the professional service companies like the, the Deloitte's and the Accenture's, they have been doing that for years. Forever, yeah. Years. You know, because their people... Uh, it, you know, if they're in the consulting or sales and, and they're in the office, they're not making money, right? And so we, we have intentionally created spaces that are amazing for when they're there, but you're not going to stay there longer than you need to because they're designed for you to be out and be with your, you know, your, your customers and then you bring them in and it's an experience center, et cetera. And so there actually is a precedent. I mean, this, this is, you know, people are acting like they're so surprised about all of this stuff, it's been there all along. We just haven't paid attention to it. I mean, people have been working remotely for 20 years. This organic system, this ecosystem that we're talking about has existed. It just has never been officially acknowledged and accepted, the policies put in place, and then designed with the intent for what they are. We just kind of, it's like, yeah, it's kind of there, and we know you're, you're there, but we're not really going to pay attention to you. So what, what, is the, what is that root cause? I mean, we've had Zoom and Skype for as long as, you know, I mean, for a decade. What, what is the core reason why hybrid work hasn't happened sooner? Um, guilt. Hmm. Mm. That's you a powerful know, feeling. That, that was my gut reaction. But I, but I will tell you this. Look, I, I remember 15 years ago, I was working with some uh, some scientists in a lab and designing some space for them. And in, in, in all honesty, Doug, like the stuff that they were doing, like they have these, these, these whiteboards all over the place with all these formulas. And I'm like, I don't even know what that symbol means, let alone the string of them together. Like, I, like I, I've never felt so stupid in my life. These are brilliant people. And they're all doing heads on concentrative work and they're all doing their own individual things. And yes, yes, there's times that they need equipment in the lab, et cetera, but um, you know, they were they needed all these spaces and the whole debate about, you know, how much enclosed space and privacy, et cetera. I said, Well, why you know, if you guys are doing that kind of work where you're really getting heads down concentrative work and you're spending your entire day trying to find quiet spaces, why don't you just work from home? And they said, well, you know, kind of, you know, kind of feel like we need to be here and, you know, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most brilliant people on the planet were still guilted into coming in because there's this expectation that if I can't see you, then how am I supposed to manage you? And how do I know you're really working? And that gets back to that whole trust thing. And I t I'll tell clients, if, if, if that's your concern, then you've got a trust issue. That's an HR issue and I can't help you. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to stop managing by presence 
and we need to start managing by performance. And I love the question, um, well, how do I know somebody's really working if I can't see them? How do you know they're really working if you do see them? Right? <laughs> I mean, 80% of online shopping happens between 9 and 5. Just because you can see somebody sitting at their desk does not mean that they're being productive. No, no. Right? I mean, it doesn't. And you can't, you can't be productive all day. You just can't. And I think that's one of the things we, we're trying to get to in the office, this, this lifestyle office environment where you get to bring some of those you know, moments from home into work. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a great uh, adage that we should work like athletes. So athletes, whose job it is to be physically fit and, you know, to train, they train in 90-minute spurts because mm. mentally and physically uh, beyond that tends to be a challenge. So they tend to work in 90-minute spurts, then they take a break, they refresh, et cetera, and then they get back to it. If you are, if you try just to, to drudge, you know, kind of continue doing it and drudge on and on and on and on, you get diminishing returns. And so the notion that somebody could sit down at a computer and be productive for eight hours straight, even three or four hours straight, um, is a misnomer. And what we really need to do is take mental breaks, uh, get a fresh perspective, walk. I mean, they say the best thing that you can do for yourself is to take a 10-minute walk, walk up and down a few flights of stairs, you know, for 10 minutes every hour, that's actually better than going to the gym and having a, a vigorous workout uh, in the morning because it kind of keeps your body active throughout the day. And, you know, the second you sit down and your body just goes into this lull, I mean, you've seen the movie Wally, right? Yeah. We are yeah. dangerously close to that right now. And that was done as a joke and said, yeah. don't ever get to this. But do you know how close we are to that right now? We're really, yeah. really close to that right now. You know, I, it's interesting just to, to think about this um, work like an athlete. I'm really kind of, that's got my mind spinning. Just that notion, um, if we think about that, how does, how could space be designed differently with that in mind? Thinking about these kind of 90-minute episodes and then these things that happen in between these rechargeable moments. So like, okay... You know, all of a sudden we're programming now for these for these recharge moments. You know, I, I know we can't all be outside. If you're in Minnesota, you know, your your walking options are fairly limited. But I mean, if you have a large enough space, could you could you start to build in sort of movement? And I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm imagining a different place, sort of. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's stop designing space like people are potted plants. <laughs> and second of all. Let's stop expecting the most inflexible thing in an environment to be the most flexible so that the most flexible thing in an environment, the people, can be as lazily as they want to be. Okay, mm. We need to rethink this, and we need to design so that people are getting up and active and moving. I mean, I can design a space that you will not want to stay in for more than an hour, and I don't mean it will be ugly or hideous, but you, know, you think about it, I mean, like McDonald's designs the chair so you're comfortable for 15 minutes, and then it starts to hurt, and you get up and you move, right? You know, you don't think, wow, I'm leaving because this chair, you know, it's just, oh, I need to get up and move, right? Where Starbucks does the exact opposite, you sink into a chair, and you can never get back out of it, right? Because, you know, it's just that whole Starbucks experience. So designers have a lot of tools and tricks in our, in our, um, 
in our toolbox that we can use to help create a space that will encourage movement. And if you don't assign people to work points, you go free address, you set up specific environments for specific types of tasks. I mean, if you think about it, the, the workplace that is assigned to an individual that's the equivalent of a one-room efficiency apartment. You're supposed to sit there and everything is there and it's enabling me to be as lazy as I want to be, which is why we have to have ergonomic furniture because we're doing something for a longer period than we should, right? So, so you know, not all furniture should be ergonomic furniture. Sorry, I know that's going to break your heart, but <laughs> it shouldn't because in areas where I don't want you to sit for a long period, I actually want you to after half an hour to get up and move and go someplace else. But then you go to a place, you know, like if you're an air traffic controller, you're a programmer, and you need to sit there for a long period, then absolutely we're going to support you in that. But the, the solutions need to be tailored to the activity that people are doing. They need to encourage movement, and they need to enable that. And I think we need to, to use technology better. We need to create a variety of options and choices that truly empower people, and that includes uh, different work points, different, you know, within the same space. Uh, it includes outdoor space that's, that's very functional. Again, sorry to say this, but, you know, I think sometimes, again, we're overthinking it, right? So had a client in Southern California that was really interested in circadian lighting. And that's not about, that's a great thing for them to be thinking about, but you're in the most mild climate, like one of the best climates in the world, go outside. Like, you're, you're designing a fake system right next to the real system. So yeah. why wouldn't you just create better outdoor workspaces that have shading and solar screening and some fans and power so that people get the real circadian lighting that's five feet away on the other side of that wall in a beautiful <laughs> climate? You know, so I think we just need to, we're always thinking about the workarounds, but not really addressing the problem. And we don't think mm. about the side effects either, which we need to do. Mm. Word side effects have come up twice. And I think that's just kind of an interesting notion that everything has side effects. Yeah. And there's this sort of working from home side effects. There's this working all day in the office side effects. And then there's the side effects of society that's transforming because yeah. of COVID. Yeah, I, I, I think part of it is just kind of thinking it through. But but also, look, I mean, there are other parts of the world that we can learn some of this stuff from, right? You know, like there was a there was a debate early on about going unassigned or assigned. And, you know, we're big proponents of unassigned free address. And uh, for many, many reasons, I can go on for hours about this. But in Asia, you know, it's a newer concept to people in Asia. And so w they were one of the first that went back after the pandemic. And initially people thought everybody's going to want a dedicated desk because they're not going to want to share anything. Well, first of all, we all know now that the spread isn't really through contact as much, still a little mm -hmm. bit, but, you know, but we also have a heightened sensitivity now to how just dirty everything is around us, which I don't think will go away for a long time. Um, but, you know, most people that have an assigned desk, their desk is dirtier than a toilet because the cleaning people are told don't clean the desk or don't move the papers around on the desk. And most people leave papers on the desk so it doesn't get cleaned. And so having a clean desk policy actually enforces and reinforces better behavior. But what we found in Asia is when people went back, they didn't want to be told who they had to sit next to. They didn't. Mm. They wanted to, the choice to move. Because let's say I'm sitting next to somebody who doesn't believe in masks and is like whatever and really cavalier, but let's say I'm really freaked out and sitting next to this person all day is going to you know push me over the edge. I mean, Doug... 
If you think there have been fights in grocery stores. <laughs> oh, man. You know, cho choice and variety have been a key theme in a lot of our dialogue today. I want to ask about hot desking, free address space. There's so many different terms for it. You know, when it first came out, when the pandemic first started, I had this initial gut reaction. You know, wow, no one's going to want to share desks. The free address concept is dead forever. And of course, you know, the complete opposite is true. Uh, it's become even more critical part of our work strategies, and I completely understand it. Um, but I want to know, like, what are what are some of the things that we get completely wrong when it comes to free address, and what are some of the important things we need to consider when, if if we want to make it really work for us? Okay, so I'm going to call it free choice. Okay, and uh, I think that one of the things I get wrong is one of your choices is to sit in the same spot every single day if you choose to do that, because there are some people that are creatures of habit and they want that and they need that. And so we need to acknowledge that. Um, I think another thing that people get wrong is the, what are the best benefits of, of going to free choice environments is that you don't need to have as many dedicated work points because they're being shared. And so you have the ability to up your game and to have fewer work points but better work points and a variety. What drives me insane is when I see somebody that just puts in rows and rows of benching and, you know, same densification and says, yeah, it's free choice. It's like, there really isn't a choice because they're all exactly the same. What's the choice? Woohoo. Like, wow, you gave me, you know, turkey or turkey. Thanks. You know, I mean... That's, that defeats the entire purpose. The entire purpose is that you should be able to, to have a greater variety and greater options and choices so that you can determine what is right for the task at hand. And if every single one is exactly the same, you've defeated that purpose, right? Mm. Um, and I think that it's important that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. And I think the other thing is that we need to zone things appropriately. When most people talk about the fact that they hate open environments... Um, and there's a difference, by the way, between open plan and open environments. But when they say that they dislike them, it's often because, well, it's so loud and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Not if you zone it appropriately and you don't put loud things right next to quiet things. And so it's, mm. there's a very simple exercise that I have to tell you, 80% of people that, you know, I mean, 80% of plans that I look at don't get it right. And it's, a, it's the essential critical element is making sure that they're buzzy spaces and that they are really quiet spaces. And you, you should be able to find a space that meets your needs. If they're all equally the same loud, if they're all equally the same lighting level, if they all have the exact same furniture, then that you've just given me the worst of everything. And I think <laughs> when people say they don't like those, what you don't like are poorly executed ones. Well-executed ones, believe me, once you've been in one, you will never go back because mm. you can find those spaces that really are important to you and a variety and choice, and it embeds movement and it encourages the right kinds of behaviors and things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's not just saying, all right, free for all. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make, not doing it it's, well. It's almost like that, that difference that we talked about in, in designing for people, singular word, or designing for individuals, you know, recognizing that people, that word is, is a very deep word with a lot yeah. of variety. And I think, uh, yeah, it's like we all need fresh air and water, but like really? 
<laughs> one size misfits all. And I, I think our industry, uh, and I think a lot of people in the corporate real estate world have tr- are trying to manage a vast portfolio and trying to provide some consistency. And so to do that, they've created a generic standardized set of parts that they just stamp across. And that didn't work when they tried to do it globally, and it doesn't work anymore in an individual environment. And I think we need to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of really understanding people's mobility levels, people's work styles, uh, their meeting styles and gathering. And I think that's another area where we fail miserably in, you know, typically as an industry. Um, There's so much better that we could do. And once we understand those types of things, then the answers start to become self-evident. And we, we need to take a deeper, richer look at those to really create environments that are enticing for people to want to be in. That's awesome. I, I love that summary and, and that challenge to our industry and to business leaders. So, Kay, how do we find more of you? <laughs> well, here, here's, here would be my message to all designers right now. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, when you're living in a moment, you tend to, to miss the magnitude of the moment. I've been a practicing designer for 37 years. In that 37 years, there could have been entire years where there was nary an article about workplace. Nobody gave a damn. Hmm. Now it's on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Every major news outlet is reporting on it, not just once, but continually. Everybody right now, the entire world is rethinking how we work, where we work, when we work, and what is the right thing. And I think this industry and the way we work is ripe for revolution and to evolve as we go forward. And we need to because we've been fairly archaic in a lot of ways. You know, for a lot of my clients, it's like, I'm not even trying to get you to 1920. Just get to the 20th century with me, right? Like what I'm talking about isn't even that, you know, isn't even, you know, craziness, right? Um, I I think that we need to make everybody realize, especially the younger generation who who has only witnessed this, this does not come around all the time. The opportunity to rethink everything in, in, in our profession. We need to seize this opportunity. We need to acknowledge what wasn't working before. We need to acknowledge what is broken in the system that we, you know, we can't keep taking forever at a high dollar rate to give people inflexible solutions. We have to think about this differently to solve people's real problems. And we need to go forward with courage because going backwards is not going to be the answer. And if we don't disrupt ourselves, then somebody else is going to do it for us. And it's already starting to happen. And so Mm. we need to take this bull by the horns. We need to see it as an opportunity to really go forward in a powerful way and reimagine what can be and what could be. I got goosebumps. (laughs) That was really good. Well, that's that's what we wake up every morning and kind of, you know, think. And so I think people just need to stop accepting the status quo. You've been given a golden opportunity, and the question is, what are you going to do with it? enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, 
visit us at ofs.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.